0: Good morning, Disciples Church. My name is Dean Murray. If you would please uh, stand and, uh, as I read the scripture for this morning, which comes from Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. Though its waters roar and foam, and the mountains quake with their surging, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her, she will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar, kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice and the earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, good morning, everyone. It is great to see all of you. Uh, We are very glad that you have joined us in worship today. My name is Dave Hahn. I am one of the pastors here at Disciples Church, and it is always my privilege to be able to open God's Word and look at God's Word with and for you. So today marks the fourth sermon in a nine-week series that we are in, leading us up to Easter Sunday. We just spent the first three weeks looking at who Jesus came for, what Jesus accomplished on behalf of those He came for, and then finally, in a broad sense, how a life in Christ is to be lived for those that He has saved. That's kind of been the last three weeks. He came… For sinners like you and me who wish him dead. Do you remember the story of the prodigal son? He came for sinners like you and me who wish him dead and who would rather have his stuff than him. He lived a perfect life and absorbed the punishment for our sin in full on the cross, making us holy and spotless and blameless and righteous in the sight of God the Father. And He rose again to give us new resurrected life in Him. And having come for us and having accomplished all that, we have now been set free from the law that accused us and killed us, all of its demands and all of its consequences, and we are now as Christians called to live in grace-driven dependency upon Him until He returns or until He calls us home, realizing that we bring nothing to our own salvation. We bring nothing to our own salvation save this, the sin that made it necessary. That's the part. That you and I play in our salvation. Everything else is Christ. So that's what we've been talking about for the last three weeks, no small things, (laughs) really the gospel. And we just wanted to be able to refresh and remind you of the gospel so that as we head into these next six weeks, the gospel is always present as you consider the things that we're about to talk about. So now, as new creations in Christ, knowing and believing the gospel to be true, there is an important question to consider, and Jonathan asked this question last week. It's actually a quote from Gerhard Forty, and it's this, what are we going to do now that we don't have to do anything? What are we going to do now that we don't have to do anything? Our salvation is eternally secure in Christ, and we remain in this world even though we don't belong to it. So with that said, what does life in Christ look like specifically for we who belong to Him? What ought the life of a Christian consist of? Not for the purpose of earning our salvation, but as an outworking of it. Not to earn God's love in Christ but to grow in it, and then to share it with others. So beginning today, over the next six weeks, those are the questions that we are going to explore biblically. And with each week that we gather, we want to give you time to consider these things by being silent with God, to hear from Him, to spend time with Him. And we also want to provide some practical helps which we hope will lead you into greater depth. And greater maturity in Christ. So, we are really excited to share these things with you, and we wanted to let you know where we're headed, and we really do look forward to what God is going to do in each of us in and through it. So, in April of 1521, an Augustinian friar was summoned to Worms, Germany, to account for a teaching he had put forth that was based on the study of the book of Romans which declares that the righteous are justified by faith alone and not by works. He was questioned and accused, and ultimately, he was asked to recant and deny this teaching. Upon returning to his room that evening, this same priest noticed that his Bible was open to Psalm 46. And so he read it anew, and the next morning after much reflection and prayer, this same priest, known by the name Martin Luther, stood before his detractors and responded with these infamous words, unless I am convinced by Scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. Psalm 46 was thought to be Martin Luther's favorite psalm. And as such, it is often referred to as Luther's psalm. That's how it's known. He would often say to his friends and partners in the gospel, come, let us sing the 46th psalm and let the devil do his worst. Let us sing the 46th psalm and let the devil do his worst. I love Martin Luther. It was Psalm 46, my friends, that inspired Luther to write his most famous hymn that you may have heard and very well may have sung, A mighty fortress is our God. So Luther withstood extraordinary pressure and persecution from the outside world and those with the ability to ruin his life because he saw and believed what I pray Psalm 46 will cause all of us to see and believe today. And it is this, that God alone is our refuge and our strength and our ever-present help In times of trouble, that our God is a mighty fortress, and because He is, we have nothing to fear. We have nothing to fear. And we can turn to Him for protection and strength no matter how dark the days get. No matter how dark. Psalm 46 is broken up into three stanzas, each are separated by the word "sela," And "sela" is a somewhat mysterious Hebrew word that is ultimately thought to mean pause and think calmly about that. When it's used in the Psalms, selah is also believed to be a musical direction from the writer, remembering that many of these Psalms were songs that were sung and played by the people. So think of this psalm, Psalm 46 specifically, as having three musical movements, each leaving space to consider what had just been played and what has just been sung. And even that simple musical direction speaks directly to the ultimate culmination and purpose of this psalm. I love what Charles Spurgeon, the theologian and pastor, had to say about the word selah. He said this. It would be well if all of us could say Selah under extraordinary trials, but too often we speak in our haste. We lay our trembling hands among the strings. We strike the lyre with a rude crash and ultimately mar the melody of our life song." Spurgeon is saying, that when God would have us pause far too often, you and I work and we strive and we carry on and we make noise that need not be made much to our own detriment. But there is, my friends, a better way. There is a better way. Let's look again at verses 1 through 3. Again, I'm reading out of the ESV. If you want to turn your Bible, turn to your Bibles or your Bible app and read with me there. Verse 1 of Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. So, friends, what God provides and how He does so is broken down into three areas in these first few verses of Psalm 46, refuge, strength, and a very present help. First, God is our refuge. The word refuge is often used in the Bible, and almost always it is in reference to God for His people. A refuge is wherever one goes in danger when they are afraid or in need of safety. Literally it means a place of trust. Children find refuge in their parents. Soldiers find refuge in bunkers. And the super wealthy and eccentric find refuge in panic rooms. And for the Christian, God is our refuge. No bunker, no panic room, no parent is going to be able to protect and be a place of trust the way that God our Father is to us. People and things and places may promise refuge, but they will fail you. But God never will. God never will. Secondarily, Psalm 46 says that God is our strength, and not just strength for us, but strength in us. So when we find ourselves saying and realizing, we cannot, God, I can't, God says, I know, but I can and I will. It is in your weakness that my power and strength is made perfect. When we say, I can't, God says, I know, but I can and I will. And finally, God is said to be our very present help. And this phrase, very present, means that He is not far off. And He is not unengaged. He is not aloof. Rather, He is right there with us nearer than the closest friend, and yet more powerful and capable of giving us the help that we need than anyone or anything. Therefore, the psalmist says, because He is our strength and because He is our help. And because he is our refuge, we need not fear because the God who makes and sustains all things by his word loves us, is near us, and is for us. Even if the earth itself gives way or if the mountains fall into the sea, even then. Now, I think that verses 2 through 3 are hyperbole. I don't know that the earth is necessarily going to give way or that we will see mountains fall into the sea. It's a bit overstated and exaggerated, but even if it were to happen, the psalmist is writing in this way for the purpose of demonstrating that there is no circumstance, there is no level of distress that we might experience where we cannot trust and rest in God, where He is not our refuge and our strength, and our help. Now, of course, it is easy to say all of this of God when all is well, but it's hard to say it when the enemy is pressing in and the days draw dark, when things appear to be at their worst. But do you know that that is exactly when this psalm was written? In the midst of great trouble and crisis for Israel, the psalmist makes this declaration to all the people of God, including you and me, so that we might be encouraged and not fear. As one pastor put it, in order to find security in God, we have to stop finding security in everything else. In order to find security in God, we have to stop finding security in everything else. So ask yourself today, what is it that I most fear? What causes my world to give way or to be thrown into the sea? Is it the state of our nation? Is it a difficult health diagnosis? The loss of a job, a severed relationship, future finances, whatever it is. And then ask yourself this, do I really believe that God is bigger, stronger, and more powerful than that thing? Do I believe that He is bigger, stronger, and more powerful than whatever it is that I fear the most? Do I trust that He is near? And that he will help me. And if I don't believe, if you can be that honest with yourself, if I don't believe, if I do not trust, do I want to? Maybe you don't believe, and maybe you can't trust, but do you want to? Are you willing to ask God to help you with your unbelief? Or ultimately, Do you find it easier to cling to someone or something else for help and security instead of God? Continuing in verse 4, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters His voice. The earth melts. Friends, do you know that Jerusalem, what is referred to here as the city of God on earth, does not have a river flowing in or out of it? Verse 4 says there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, and yet Jerusalem does not have a river flowing in or out of it. Maybe streams, but there's no great river. So what's happening here in these verses? Well, in verses 4 through 6, We find the psalmist taking a forward look, a day that the prophets foretold in Daniel, Ezekiel, and in the book of Revelations. And it is here, perhaps, that you and I find our greatest source of hope. Disciples Church, while our circumstances may not change in the here and in the now, even unto our very lives being lost, the promises of God to conquer, defend, heal, and restore His own will find their fulfillment in a day that is yet to come. His promises may not be fulfilled here on earth, but they will be fulfilled in full in a day that is yet to come, a day to come in the new Jerusalem, in the new heavens and the new earth, and that's what the psalmist is talking about here, a day where there is no suffering, disease, war, and all other troubles. But here's my question, friends, is that promise enough for you and me? Is that promise enough for you and me? Do we find peace in knowing that there will come a day even if it's not today? Hebrews 11 details a list of the faithful in the story of God. And among them were those who had God-given victory here on earth, did incredible things. But also among them, are those who suffered and were killed and were defeated. But do you know that the psalm ends by saying that no matter their faith on earth, God's favor rested upon them, that the world was not worthy of either, that through their faith in Christ, they found their true victory and hope in a life that is to come, saying, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is our helper. We will not and need not fear. What can man do to us? Continuing in verses 7 through 9 of Psalm 46. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how He has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. In verse 7, and then again in verse 11, we find an identical phrase with two distinctly meaningful names for God the Lord of hosts and the God of Jacob. Now the name, the Lord of hosts, is perhaps familiar to many of us, at least sounds familiar. We do find it in many beloved Christmas songs and familiar readings, like in Luke 2 where it says, a multitude of the heavenly host praised God, saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. That's familiar. But what does that title mean? What is heavenly host? What does it mean that God is the Lord of hosts? Well, it it is in reference to God's command over His armies, not only the army of His peoples here on earth, but the armies of heaven, all the armies of heaven. God sits in command over all of them. As one commentator put it, the concept underlying the name Lord of hosts is that of the universe as an ordered whole, a disciplined army, and a cosmos obedient to his voice. That's what it means that he's Lord of hosts. The second name that we find in verses 7 and 11 is the God of Jacob, a name that reflects both faithfulness and intimacy. In the Lord of hosts, my friends, we have the King of kings and the Lord of lords who holds sway over all the armies of heaven and earth. And in the God of Jacob, we have a personal, highly relational God of grace who has loved and does love and always will love those that He has chosen and belong to Him. And He, this God, is our fortress our God who brings desolation upon his enemies and peace for we who are his people. And one day or another, according to verse 9, we will look upon the broken, shattered pieces of what was meant for our harm. The bow and the spear and the chariots that were meant for our harm will be crushed at the voice of God. Finishing up in verses 10 through 11, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, Selah. So my wife, Sheila, has the first part of verse 10. Be still and know that I am God, sitting in a frame in our laundry room. The verse is written in this kind of flowery font, and it's surrounded by butterflies and I think flowers. (laughs) To be fair, that's probably how most of us think about verse 10. So there's nothing wrong with that frame. That's how most of us think about it. It's peaceful and it's lighthearted. And from a certain point of view, that verse is that. But in the context of this whole psalm, I was thinking about it this week. I wonder if dark, looming storm clouds with explosions in the distant sky wouldn't be a more accurate graphic to surround this verse. This verse was not written in the midst of puppy dogs and rainbows and flowers. Out of context, be still may not communicate what is actually going on in Psalm 46. Do you know that the New American Standard Version of the Bible translates verse 10 as cease striving? Cease striving. The CSV translates that verse as stop your fighting and know that I am God. And the message, the Eugene Peterson version of the Bible translates, verse 10, as step out of traffic, cease striving, stop fighting, step out of traffic, and be still. God's command to stop, to cease, and to be still, friends, is primarily for His enemies and all who war against him. But it is also for his people, for his people who are afraid and working to save themselves from that which threatens them. After all, the Psalms of God are for the people of God. So the command to stop striving, to stop fighting, to be still is certainly for his enemies as he is God and has command to say those things. But it is also for you and I, his people when we find ourselves afraid and working to save ourselves from whatever it is that threatens. To the enemies of God and to the people of God, the command to stop, cease, and be still is given for different reasons. But the reason for His command is the same, because I am God and you are not. Cease striving. Stop fighting. And be still, because I am God and you are not. Friends, in order to stop fighting, to cease from striving, and to be still, it means that we have to humble ourselves and admit and say to God, Lord, I can't, but you can. Lord, I can't, but you can. And to know that he is God is much more than an intellectual assent to an idea. The Hebrew word for know, as we read it here, means to internalize something fully. To believe something in the very depths of your being and then to be shaped by it. That's what it means to know God. So in Mark 4... We find a fairly well-known story of Jesus and the disciples in a boat crossing the Sea of Galilee, when suddenly, the Bible says, a great windstorm arose, causing waves to break into the boat and ultimately fill it with water. And Jesus, asleep on a cushion in the stern of a boat, was awakened, not by the storm, not by the water pouring into the boat but by the sound of his disciples screaming for help, crying, do you not care that we are perishing? So Jesus got up, rebuked the wind, and said, listen, peace, be still. He got up from sleeping in the bow of the boat and said to the wind and the storm, peace, be still still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm with Jesus asking his disciples, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Do you know, my friends, that the same command God gave his enemies and his people in Psalm 46, to stop and to cease and to be still is the same command that Jesus gave to the wind and the waves that threatened. And like his enemies and like the people of Israel and the rain and the wind in Mark 4, you and I would be wise to obey him. Friends, how much time and how much effort and energy do we waste making noise when we should be quiet? carrying things that God has not asked us to pick up, doing things He has not asked us to do, trying to solve things we don't have the ability to solve, or endlessly worrying and crying in the midst of storms that He may have allowed for our good. How much time energy and effort do we waste trying to fight the Lord's battles, and even worse than that, sometimes fighting against God Himself. So our son Seth just got his temporary driver's license on Friday, so be warned, he's now out on the roads learning to drive with me, with Sheila, and a licensed instructor of some kind eventually. All right, it got me thinking uh, about the time that I learned to drive, right around that time, decades ago. And I remember that when I learned to drive, the instruction vehicles had two sets of brakes, one on the driver's side and then one on the instructor's side. And if things got out of control, the instructor could take over and prevent disaster from happening. I don't know if they do that anymore, I suppose we'll find out soon. But that concept reminded me of those moments where you and I fight with God for control of the vehicle, as it were. Here's the thing, though. Our vehicle doesn't really belong to us. It belongs to God, and He paid for it with the blood of His Son. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. And God wants to sit in the driver's seat of our lives and take us where He wants to go. Deciding when we go, how fast we go, and how long. And even more than that, deciding when we need to stop. Now imagine a car driving down the road with two sets of controls like in the instructional vehicles And there's one for the driver and one for the passenger, and each traveler in that vehicle has a very different idea as to the where's, when's, and how's of that trip. That trip is going to be a bumpy, turbulent, worrisome ride, likely taking longer than necessary to get there with lots of U-turns and some potential off-road adventures to get things back on track. And so it is with us and God. At some point, my friends, we have to stop fighting. We have to cease striving and be still and know that He is God, resting in His strength and His very present help. At some point, like Miss Carrie Underwood, we need to say, Jesus, take the wheel. Take it from my hands. I can't do this on my own. And letting go. How's that for a pop culture reference from nowhere? <laughs> Friends, fighting and striving and busyness is found both outside us and within us if we want to know. We, we fight and we strive and we keep ourselves busy both in here and out there. Externally, It is our fast-paced, overactive, busy lives that keep us from hearing God's voice and enjoying Him. It is a noisy world. And internally, we have anxieties and worries and self-imposed, listen to that, self-imposed to-do lists that keep us from being still in His presence because it seems that the quieter that we get, the noisier those inner voices become. Even when we're trying to be quiet, it seems like all of those voices get louder. But do you know that that is not what God has in mind for you and me? That is not what God has in mind for us. I mean, do you see evidence of a hurried, worried life in the life of Jesus Christ in the Gospels? Is that what you see? No, no. What we see instead is a life of stillness, calmness, and satisfaction in His Father, doing only what the Father would have Him do and saying only what the Father would have Him say. In fact, in the Gospels, we routinely see Jesus pull away from everyone and everything else to be alone with His Father, and then encouraging His followers to do the same. We see Jesus pulling away from everyone and everything else to be alone with His Father. Do you realize as you read the Gospels that not everyone Jesus encountered was healed or raised from the dead? that not everyone was fed, that not every need was met, and that not everyone heard the gospel. Not all of those things happened before Jesus would step away for stillness and solitude with God. He left things undone to do the more important thing. In doing so, Jesus demonstrated to his disciples and he has demonstrated to you and me our great need for regular silence with God the Father. Realizing that our ability to love God and our ability to love one another flows from having been with God like a branch unto the vine. And it also lets us know that we can trust God to take care of whatever else we think needs doing when we are silent with Him. My friends, the world will always churn. There will always be those who demand things of us, and there will always be things to busy ourselves with. But in all of it, God's command to you and I is stop your fighting. Cease your striving and be still and know that I am God no matter how bad or busy things get. He alone is our refuge when danger looms. He is our strength when we're weak and he is our very present help when we find ourselves helpless. And his life in us, Jesus' very life in us is where we find our hope our rest, and the ability to live the Christ life. So if you're tired and if you're weary and if you're frightened today, understand that it is likely because you are fighting, striving, and refusing to be still before him. And he commands you and me in those moments to stop, to be at rest, and fear nothing. Nothing. So practically speaking, then, what does this look like? How do we stop fighting? How do we cease striving? And how do we learn to be still and know that He is God? I mentioned at the front end of the message that we are going to do two things each week during these services. First, we are going to provide what we hope are practical helps connected to each passage we explore. And second, we're going to give you time to do what we have been talking about today. We're going to take time to stop and pause and consider and be still with God. So trust me when I say that being quiet and being still before God takes some getting used to. It's actually why we introduce it in our services as often as we do. We want to get you used to the idea and then bring it home. But it has been my experience that when you first start, silence with God is often not silent. If you've spent any time here, you've been invited into silence and experienced that truth for yourself. Our minds tend to race, to-do lists pop up, random thoughts come and go, right? There's a lot of internal noise, and for most of us in our day and age, that is the norm, unfortunately. And so, we don't give up on it. We just need to practice it. We need to put new, healthy, biblical habits in place and trust that just like every other discipline will get increasingly better at it, see the fruit of it, and then want more of it. Personally speaking, my time in silence isn't nearly as noisy as it first was when I began making a habit of it. It required carving out a time and a place for it each day, oftentimes multiple times a day when things were really churning. But then I would begin hearing from and enjoying God more, and at the same time, quieting the outside and the inside voices that make so much noise. So let me encourage all of you to try different places and different times to determine what works best for you as you attempt to be still and to be quiet and to stop fighting. But let your goal be consistency and being quiet. For me, it is on my way to work each morning, and then again at 1.30 in the afternoon. Nothing magical about 1.30 in the afternoon, it's just when it works. But I get up out of my desk chair, and I close my door, and I sit still with God. No other noises, no other distractions. Each day, my phone calendar reminds me because my best intents aren't going to always work, but my iPhone calendar alert always does. And if I have a meeting at 1.30 that day, I can move that appointment with God forward or back, but I try hard not to miss it. And if I do miss it, I don't beat myself up about it. I don't abandon the practice altogether. I simply get back to it the next day. Now, the practical help that we have for you today provides a week-long opportunity, not just a few minutes in a Sunday service every once in a while, but a week-long opportunity to practice silence and stillness. And as you leave today, on the back table, we have a packet called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality Day by Day. It looks like this. It's on that back table. You can pick one up and take it with you. There is enough for everyone, and it's a week-long sample of what is ultimately a 40-day devotional of the same name, and the packet talks you through the process of silence and stillness, and it gives you the what and the when and the where and the why of it, and then it gives you five days to practice it and to enter into it. So, would you give it a try this week or next if this week isn't great and see what God does in and you if it's helpful for you consider picking up the full 40 day devotional and using it as a help to be still before God but if it's not particularly helpful find something else that is but don't give up on implementing something good like silence and stillness with God in your life don't give up on it my friends if Jesus needed it here on earth and there's all kinds of biblical evidence that he did how much more do you and I how much more to you and I. So I'm going to pray, and after I'm done, I'm going to ask you to take a few minutes to be still and to listen to and enjoy God. Don't talk. Just listen and be still. And then after a few minutes of silence, we'll close with one more song in response. Let's pray. Father God, teach us this morning and always the familiar refrain of this psalm and to observe its musical direction. Selah. Would you help us to pause and consider who you are and what you have done? There is a time to make noise, but there is also a time to be still, to be quiet and rest. Father, every song is your song. Every instrument is your instrument and every player is under your direction whether they realize it or not. You alone are God and we are not. Remind us of that. We live in a turbulent, sinful world that vies for our attention, our allegiances, and our worship, but only you are worthy of it. Remind us, God, that often storms are sent by you and they are always made peaceful by you. Let us run to you our refuge and our fortress when this world threatens, believing you to be the strength we do not have and the help that we so desperately need. You are with us. Father, there is noise both outside of us and within us. Would you teach us to crave silence and solitude with you? And trust that in time you will melt the voices of opposition we have spent our lives listening to. And that your voice will grow louder and sweeter. Lord, we confess that we fight, we strive, and busy ourselves to our own detriment. Would you help us hear your command to stop and to be still and then obey it? Where there is fear, would you help us to see how big, powerful, and present you are? So much so that fear itself may vanish In place of peace. Give to us an unquenchable desire to be with you in silence and to simply enjoy your voice and your presence. It is good for us to be quiet. As we step into a short time of silence this morning, would you keep our minds and hearts on you? And if we should drift, bring us back, for it is not you who leave but us. Give to us this week and in the weeks to come the desire and ability to commit to regular silence and solitude with you, where we can practice stopping and being still. Would you cause us to see and hear you in it and to be so transformed by our time with you that our desire for that time would only increase. Father, teach us to slow down and give our time, our hearts, and our thoughts to what is eternal and that which gives you glory. In Jesus' name we ask and we pray. Amen.